So to set the context, we are looking at a community which is flourishing. There is great unity in the early church, as we've looked at in previous weeks. They are of one heart and mind. There is great, God's grace is at work in so many different ways. There's a common, they share a common faith. They are advancing the kingdom together. And there's a profound sense of commitment to each other, which is expressed in a radical generosity together. But amidst all of that good things that are going on, we are going to come to a really sobering moment in the life of the church. Um, a moment of really of a grievous act of deceit. You may have heard of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, amidst all this genuine generosity, we have a couple here who make a pretense of generosity. They deceive the church. They want to look good. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the church. And in that moment, there is a moment of instantaneous judgment. They die. And it's not like a kind of random thing. They, it's experiencing the judgment of God in that moment. It's a sobering moment. It's actually fascinating, isn't it, that, that Luke even includes this moment in, in, the, in his account. This would have been a kind of a little bit uncomfortable to look back on, to remember this moment of judgment. It's a reminder that Luke, as he seeks to record the history of what God is doing amongst the people, he's, he's wanting to give a warts and all account. He's not going to give us an idealized vision of all the good stuff without showing us sometimes the very worst parts of the reality of the early church. But really, what this is all about is it's a warning. It says God wants a holy church. He's committed to the holiness of his bride. And he is deeply opposed to the pretense of religiosity. So let me read to you this moment. Let's start with Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands and ha or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then Ananias kind of seemed to want to do the same thing, but from a very different motive. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. 
And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, essentially what Ananias had claimed that he had sold it for. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those all who heard of these things. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to your word, I want to pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we just want to come to you and humble ourselves before your word. And we want to ask that you would come and speak. That you come and convict us. Come and reveal to us where we need to be challenged. I pray you would be heard loudly and clearly this morning. I pray you'd do a work in our hearts, that you would make us a people who are pure-hearted, who are not religious hypocrites, but sincerely devoted to you. Amen. So I suspect as we open this passage, I think some of you may be asking, what has happened here? What is going on? Let me try and explain something of the grievousness of what Ananias and Sapphira have done, because I suspect for many of you, it doesn't quite make sense yet. Well, the first thing you've got to see is there is deceit in this moment. It's not obvious, but undoubtedly they have at some point, perhaps it's not exactly articulated here, but they have said, we are going to sell our property and we are going to give all of the proceeds as an act of generosity. So they have made a claim that they're going to give everything that from what they've sold, but that hasn't been the reality. Actually, they have kept back against their word what they promised they would give. And of course, you can hear their, the fact that at the heart of this, they have lied. Twice, Peter tells them, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Later on in verse 5, he says the same thing. Essentially, that they have been lying not just to man, but to God. And actually then, Sapphira gets an opportunity. Peter then brings her in and says, basically, how much did you sell it for? And, and, you know, she probably, at this point, should have realized something was up. And Peter, Peter saying to her, you know, did you sell it for essentially what Ananias claimed you sold it for? And she just goes along with it. She says, yep, absolutely, I sold it for that. And she is joining in with the same deceit as Ananias. So we see deceit here. We also see embezzlement. This is not just an act of uh, deceit. It's also an act of theft. The word that is used in verse 2 when he talks about keeping back, you've kept this back, is elsewhere used in the Old Testament to describe one who takes from that which has been devoted from the Lord. It's an act of theft. Later on in Titus chapter 2, the same word is used to describe literally one who steals. They have stolen from the donation that they have pledged. They have said, we're giving this, and actually, no, we're going to take some of this. So there is theft going on here. Financial fraud is implied by some of uh, the language that's used elsewhere in this passage. So there's embezzlement. There's theft, there's deceit. There's also greed. What is driving them? Why are they doing this? And really, this deception, at least partly, I think we can see, is driven by greed. A deception because of a love of money. There's a sense of contrast with what we've just been reading about. At the beginning, in in, uh, Acts chapter 4, this great generosity is going on in the church. We are meant to see the contrast and see that for these guys, they they are holding back 
They are lying to the church because they love money. And actually, I think there's a, contra- there's a comparison here with, with Judas. Judas, who betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver in today's money, a few hundred pounds. Essentially, we're seeing a kind of similar kind of incident. They deceive the, be- the people of God and ultimately God himself because they love money. But actually, those are just kind of some of the surface issues. The really critical issue that this passage is about, which may surprise some of you, is hypocrisy. What do I mean by hypocrisy? Well, let me give you one image that kind of explains this idea of hypocrisy. The word hypocrite is used by the Greeks to describe actors. The the hypocrite, if you're an actor in in a theater, you were a hypocrite. And it speaks of one who, who plays religion, who makes a play of religion, who has a kind of pretense of religiosity. One who gives all the right mood music with their life and with their words, but actually underneath, their hearts are far from the reality that they are portraying. They are acting. And you can see that even in the, con- the contrast with Barnabas. They've just seen Barnabas do this. They've just seen him come and give perhaps something worth thousands of pounds. He sold a field, laid it at the apostles' feet. And then one suspects some jealousy takes over their hearts, that they, perhaps they're jealous. You know, Barnabas has got a nickname. The apostles really like him. He's kind of a, a, a man on a, on a kind of rising trajectory, as we, can, as we know later on. He has a significant part to play in the, in the early church. There's something going on in their hearts that drives them to almost want to replicate what Barnabas just did, but not for the same reasons. One writer uh, put it, their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. You can see it because Peter says to them, look, you didn't need to do this. You know, yes, there's this incredible pattern of generosity in the early church, but there's no suggestion it's obligatory. He says, you know, while while it remained unsold, it was yours. Actually, even when you sold it, you didn't have to give all of this. So there is a sense to which this is unnecessary. This is not a requirement in the early church. Why are they doing this? Because they just want to make a, a, a religious charade. They want to show the others this kind of idea of, of, of uh, devotion to God when actually the reality is so far from that. And so what's the result? There is judgment. The Spirit reveals to Peter what is going on. And in a moment, there is judgment. Maybe in human terms, people speculate, oh, maybe he's kind of died of a heart attack of kind of being shocked by this. I think that's not enough to explain what's going on. Undoubtedly, this is the Lord saying, right loudly and clearly, I will not have this in my church. Now, some of you, as you see this moment of judgment, you say, it feels harsh. Why does God do this? And actually, just stop a second with that question, because it actually often reveals something about a habit in our society. We judge God. <laughs> we put God in the dock. Actually, you're missing the whole point that the living God is the judge of mankind, of humanity. It's kind of the wrong way around. Actually, this, this moment of judgment is exceptional. I will say that. It's exceptional in its speed, in the sense of the act is completed, and then there's judgment immediately. So it is unusual, and yet it's a revelation. It's a a picture of the wider reality that the living God is the true and right judge of humanity. This is a window into the reality of the fact that God will judge the world. Actually, just think for a moment about that idea of judgment. And what I think I would argue, if you say, I don't understand this, the first thing I say is, do we not see the unique... uh, authority 
insight and holiness that allows and says God is the only righteous judge. That God is the creator and that we are the creature. And so he is the only one who has the authority to judge us. He is holy. He is perfect. So when you receive the judgment of another person, you can just laugh it off and say, well, you know, I've seen them. They've got nothing to say to me. I've seen their life. But you can't say that to the living God because he is uniquely holy. His judgment is perfect in that way. And there's also this moment also is a reminder of the fact that the Lord can see past the veneer and the pretense that we may kind of portray to others that he is, is the only righteous judge because he can see the full nature of our hearts. So this is exceptional in one sense, but in a sense it just reveals and reminds us of the reality of judgment to come, that one day Christ will return, establish his kingdom on this earth, and will say to all who have rejected him and, and have denied and rejected the opportunity for his forgiveness and his embrace, that they will be separated from him for eternity. Now some of you look at this and say, but this is exceptional because this is in the church. So judgment in the church? I thought we were saved by grace. And there's different interpretations of how, of how we explain this. There'll be some who say, well, these, these, these guys are Christians. And, you know, this, this moment of judgment is uh, a moment of judgment, but then they die and they'll be with God for eternity. And that's, I think that's a perfectly possible interpretation in the sense of it, it aligns with what we know about the gospel of grace that our sins are not enough to hold us back from eternity with God, that, that, our, that our salvation is not based on anything we've done, and equally, anything you've done cannot stop, cannot prevent salvation, because salvation is a gift that comes by faith in Christ and not because of works. So that could be a plausible interpretation. Others will say, no, these guys aren't Christians, and actually there is a sense that the Spirit can kind of see that, and therefore Peter can see it, and they're being cut out from the body of Christ. And actually, I don't think there's enough in this passage to really tell us which of those is true. I don't think you can really, you're, you're meant to really know the answer to that question. Because the whole point of this passage is not that we can somehow speculate to the nature of their hearts. Only the living God knows their hearts. Only he is the righteous judge. And actually, the whole point of this passage is, in a sense, not about Ananias and Sapphira. The reason why Luke includes this passage here, this uncomfortable moment in the history of the church, is so that we, it would be a warning to the church today. To say, see how seriously God takes this problem of hypocrisy. See how seriously he takes it. See, this is a, a moment of kind of interim judgment. It's a bit like, um, you know, in the book of Revelation, there are these letters from Jesus to the churches. He can see the nature of the church, and he is speaking to them, and he can identify false teaching, or he can identify the nature of their hearts, and he is speaking to them. That is what is going on here. Jesus, in, um, in Luke's gospel, speaks about the danger of what we are seeing here in this moment. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What does leaven mean? Leaven is, is yeast, right? And he's saying, beware of this yeast that will creep into the church, this idea of hypocrisy, this religious pretense. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to cut it out by the Spirit. In this moment, I'm going to stop 
this hypocrisy from breeding in the church because this is a sense to which the early church is kind of patient zero, so to speak, that what we see in this moment is then going to spread and we're going to see the early church multiply across the nations and Christ is so committed to his church and the holiness of his church and the idea against this idea of hypocrisy, he cannot let that be part of the picture here because it will just then spread and affect the church. So right, he's, he's acting to kind of remove, to see the cancer and to cut it out and to say, I will not allow this hypocrisy to continue. What it says loudly and clearly, brothers and sisters, hear this for today. Christ does not want a people who just act religious, <laughs> who say the right things and do the right things, but their hearts are far from him. He wants a people who are genuinely and sincerely devoted to him in private and in public. In public, but crucially, in private. And so we have to ask, is this true of us? Is this danger of hypocrisy true of us? And actually, I think this is such a pervasive problem in the church that we get, it's kind of normalized to us. I mean, some of you who are not Christians here are kind of, you know, almost one of the first adjectives you might um, apply to the church is hypocritical. That actually that some people are even in this room perhaps repelled by the church because you see the same problem that Jesus is putting his finger on by his spirit in this moment. Hypocrisy kind of feels normal, doesn't it? We hear all these stories of leaders who are under investigation and have, and have been acting in private different to the public persona that they have from the pulpit, so to speak. And actually many of us feel kind of betrayed by that the sense to which it kind of leaves a a bitter taste in our mouths. That is something of what I think you are feeling as you would look at this passage, that same sense of they would have, maybe perhaps some of them would have known Ananias and Sapphira, and they would have seen, we we thought they were kind of the real genuine article, and actually this deceit has been uncovered in their hearts. Some of us have seen this in our our lives with people we know. Some of us, we, we know, you know what I mean when you go into a church and you just say, I just feel like everybody here is just going through the motions. They don't really believe what they're singing. They don't really believe what they're saying or praying. It just feels inauthentic. Some of you have had that experience, and I think this passage would speak to that experience and say, yes, there is something wrong. If you perceived a kind of going through the motions and saying the right things, ritualistic prayer almost, but not actually having that sincere conviction, then I think you've witnessed this problem. For some of you, we have to look close to home and say, actually, there is a danger that some of us, our Christianity is a pretense. And what I mean by that is the idea of nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. That is, you apply the label of Christian to your life, but actually you know that your heart is not devoted to Christ. That you have no affection towards him, no love for him, no gratitude towards him. And actually in secret, your life bears no resemblance to the idea of the Christian life. And at that point, you have to say, is my whole Christian life a pretense? And then I think every one of us needs to look at this and see this is a universal challenge for the Christian life. Maybe you're that time where you're tempted to pray out, but you know you're praying because you want the people around you to think well of you. Or that time in life group where you're coming up with that zinger in the discussion and, and afterwards you're like, that was good, wasn't it? <laughs> Either you say it to yourself or maybe you say it to somebody else. You weren't really doing it because you wanted to build up the body. <laughs> you're doing it because you wanted them to admire your body, so to speak, or your mind. <laughs> this is a really big problem for us. It's a big problem for me. I think about a time when I was, um, I can't, I, I wasn't, working as a pastor, I think, but I was um, coming into church, and I found myself praying before I was coming to church. And I realized, looking back now, 
basically, I was aware that in the workplace, my, my lifestyle, my posture was so different to the, the person I wanted to be that I was praying to kind of get my behavior right by the time I got to be with the Christians. What an irony. <laughs> Surely the time you're going to be praying is going into work to be, <laughs> to be salt and light. Instead, I was praying so I would look like salt and light when I came to be among the Christians. That is, this is so deep within us, brothers and sisters. We see it in ourselves. And actually, we're going to see that we can relate to some of the roots of this behavior. Can you see the danger of this hypocrisy? Let me, let me give you three points. Can you see the danger of this hypocrisy? Can you see the foolishness of this hypocrisy? And can you pull out the roots of this hypocrisy from your heart? So can you see the danger of this hypocrisy? It feels so normal and perhaps routine to subtly inflate others' perception of you. It feels so normal. We do it almost all the time without even thinking about it. We need to see something of the offense of hypocrisy that this moment of judgment signifies. And really, actually, when you worship with other people in mind, when you build this kind of spiritual pretense or, or, or think about other people when you're making your acts of religiosity, so to speak, it's actually not worship at all. It's not worship. And actually to hear Christ's call for genuine devotion. So first of all, see the offense of hypocrisy. Some of us, this just feels like a trivial moment when you see what Ananias and Sapphira have done. You might think even, well, hang on a minute, they still gave money to the church. What's, what's such a big deal? Why, why is he making such a big deal of what they have done? What you've got to see is hypocrisy is wrong because it's, it's deceit. It's lying. And I think some of us, we live in a context where lying is kind of normalized. Many of us in our workplaces, the people around you, it is just normal to say, just fudge those numbers a little bit. Just, just give the best impression we can. Or um, perhaps make up an excuse. You know, we know the client's work is going to be late. Let's just make up an excuse rather than tell them the reality. Or actually, we know we made those errors, but let's hide that because we don't want to admit to that to other parts of the business or maybe to your colleagues. It's really normal to lie in our culture. And actually, this is exactly what's going on in this moment. They are lying to inflate other people's perception of them, but that is almost routine in the, circum in the, in the context we're in, in the, with the people around you. What we need to see is there's nothing trivial about deceit. What you do with your tongue it has the power to build up and encourage, or it has the power to bring destruction and to be basically evil. See the evil of this of deceit. I think about in Proverbs chapter six, it talks about the things that God hates. One of the things that He hates is lying. There are six things that the Lord hates: seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes—that's pride. A lying tongue. Perhaps we can see the connection between the two. A hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises pl wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, so those who might cause destruction to others, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among, a among the brothers. Actually, this moment is the kind of moment that has the potential to sow discord. They're, they're not just lying to God, they're lying to the community, and that will undermine. Whenever you've been in a community and you've seen people lie, it has the power to radically destroy trust in that community. Do we see how much God hates lying and how it can cause destruction in our community? But there's something worse here. There's also mockery. There's also a great sense of contempt as Ananias and Sapphira kind of think they can fool God. There's a sense to which their hypocrisy is a kind of sense of, if I just say the right things or do this tokenistic effort, that will satisfy God. There's a pride about that to which the God says, I will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. You can see through the pretense that you might try and put up. It says, 
you know, that those who might say, all I can kind of utter these few words of prayer, perhaps in a kind of religious service, but actually have no lifestyle or devotion to Christ, really what you're saying is, I can kind of satisfy the Lord with a few words. Actually, no, he says, Lord, the Lord wants far more than that. He wants your whole heart. And you can see this, how seriously Christ takes this, by the extent to which he warns against this throughout his ministry. Actually, almost, you, if, you hear, if you look at the Gospels, you'll be surprised that Christ speaks almost more about hypocrisy and the danger of hypocrisy than many of what we might call like the big ticket sins that, people, that you might hear preachers talking about all the time. Isn't that fascinating? He's so concerned about the, the universal danger of doing religious acts for the approval of other people rather than because you love God. You see this in, in Matthew chapter 6. He talks about three temptations to hypocrisy. He speaks about those who might be tempted to give because we, think, because we want people to think we're generous. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. He's saying, look, there are those in in your culture, in your community, who are just giving because they want to be perceived as generous. We like when people think we're generous. Actually, sometimes in some contexts, you see plaques on the wall all around churches or other public monuments as a sign of all the people who want to say, look how generous we are. Look how wealthy we are. And it's almost your generosity as a kind of status symbol. We see this in prayer. Some of us might be tempted to pray because we want to make people think we're holy. Jesus speaks to this danger of praying for the wrong reasons. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. So there are those who will just pray in public because they want everyone else to think they are holy and spiritual. And says, no, Christ wants private prayer. And then he talks about those who are fasting. And he says, you, you may be tempted to fast because you want people to recognize the sacrifice that you are making. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Saying, so we, we kind of like it. We, I don't know about you, maybe not, may not be fasting for you, but maybe you've made a big sacrifice and you kind of go around, a bit like, um, have you seen those kind of comedians talk about this with husbands and wives? The husband's done some cleaning for the first time in a week, and, uh, and the wife goes, and then he kind of goes, look at me, look at what I've done, and, and kind of like wants to show it off to his wife. And there's a bit of kind of cultural meme about that. But it's, it's a bit like that. But whenever we make a sacrifice, we kind of want that sacrifice to be acknowledged by others. There's going to be that temptation in the Christian life, whenever you make a sacrifice, to want other people to see it. Actually, every ethical system is open to this kind of abuse. It's not just religion, not just Christianity. You see this in kind of slacktivism, as people put, uh, like make comments about social justice causes online, but in reality, their life makes no attempt to address the problem that they are speaking about. Or um, what might be called performative environmentalism, that sense to which you, you do the right things. Yes, you might care about it, but really because you know the other people around you are looking at you. I was having a meal with some people last week, and I knew they were all very environmentally conscious, and when I, they kind of send, sent the meal choices around, they said, you know, choose your meal, and I thought, well, I better, I better, I love chicken, I love meat, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not vegetarian, I better have the vegetarian risotto, <laughs> and then about three days later, I was like, no, <laughs> I'm, <not, laughs> I'm going to go back, I don't know whether it was um, 
like just greed, <laughs> hunger, or like a repulsion to hypocrisy in my heart, but I went back and I showed I had the chicken. But my, my <laughs> this, is, this is so normal, brothers and sisters, in our context. We all love to parade our righteousness or just to be a little bit righteous, to fit in with the people around us. Why is Jesus so against this? Why is he warning against the danger of praying because you want people to holy, make you think you're holy or trumpeting your fasting or your sacrifices? It's because hypocrisy is like a counterfeit banknote. It looks like the real thing, but it's completely worthless. Hypocrisy isn't really devotion to Christ at all. It's actually what it is, is the, the love of the praise of man. You are hypocritical. You do these things because you want the people around you to approve of you, to think well of you. Your hypocrisy, your hypocritical religious acts are not done because you're devoted to Christ, because you are devoted to the praise of the people around you. So it's no religion at all, or rather it's a completely different religion. It's the worship of the approval of people around you. So you have to ask yourself, which one do you want more? Do you want the praise of man or do you want the praise that comes from God? So what does Jesus want then? If it's, not, if it's not this hypocritical act, what is Jesus saying? And what you see is he speaks to this danger again and again. He says, do it in secret. As he talks to those who might be giving, he says, don't let your right hand, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you give, don't let anybody else see what you're giving. Give in secret. It's one of the great benefits of giving via uh, online transfer, actually, is that no, it's, you can never be a kind of temptation of doing it for the approval of other people. What about the Lord's Prayer? What about praying? He says, go into your room. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray in secret. Fast. He says, basically, don't, don't disfigure your face, so to speak. Do it without anybody knowing that you're doing it. Secret worship is what the Father wants. Secret worship. Your the depth of the worship in your life will not be measured by whether you raise your hands or clap your hands or whatever it is in Sunday. Please feel free to do that. We love that. Don't, don't stop that. But it won't be your, that's not the measure of whether there's worship going on in your life. The measure of whether there's worship going on in your life is the state of your private worship, your private prayer, your private devotion. Do you have integrity in your faith, ultimately, is what they're saying. C.S. Lewis says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. If I was to look at just the private aspects of your life, which no one else could see, what would that tell me about what you worship? If I was to look at the private acts of your life, the ones that no one else can see, what would that tell me about what you worship? That is the question that this provokes us to ask. Are you the same kind of person in every context? I already mentioned the temptation that you might, you, might, you might kind of forget your Christianity when you go to work. This would all force us to say, are you the same person in every context? But why, why does he want secret worship? It's not just because he wants secret worship. It's because he wants genuine devotion. The opposite of hypocrisy is a heart totally devoted to Christ. That says, I am genuinely devoted to you. Christ wants true heartfelt worship. This challenge says, pay attention to your heart is, is a, as an act or a kind of marker of the state of your worship. The question is, where is your heart? Jesus speaks about this 
problem of hypocrisy. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Are you constantly pursuing genuine, heartfelt worship? To one who hungers after God because he is God, not because anybody else is looking. This is a moment where we are challenged to lay down our pretense and to pursue God for the reason of him, him alone, and his worth, and his beauty, his attractiveness, the love that is better than life. He says, I don't want to do it for any other reason except for him. So we don't we see the offense? Don't we realize the, hypo- the foolishness of your hypocrisy? Many of us are subconsciously or consciously kind of curating an image of ourselves to others, and we kind of just need to realize the foolishness of this. The sense in which it's not helping you. Actually, it's harming you to present an image before other people. Actually, we need to be willing to be radically honest with each other. To run against this, it means being radically honest with each other. Can you see the foolishness of this moment? Ananias and Sapphira are attempting to try and portray their godliness to other people, and yet at the very end of this story, the irony is, everybody, their, their lack of devotion to God has been exposed before everybody. The sense to which it's just foolish to try and put on a pretense because God sees everything. So there's no point in trying to put on a pretense before others. This is foolish because God sees everything. You cannot trick him. He's always aware of what's going on in your life. He sees your desires. He sees your hidden internet history. He sees the way you treat your spouse when no one else is around. He sees your thought life. There's no point in trying to hide from the living God. In one sense, there's no point even trying to hide this from others because God already sees everything about your life. And you know what? That's not just confronting. It's also wonderfully liberating because you don't need to put on a pretense anymore. You don't need to hide because he sees it all anyway. I love this, um, these verses in Psalm 139 that speak really of that kind of sense of, you know me, Lord. The psalmist is saying this not in a kind of um, burdensome way, but actually like you see the nature of my heart. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He says, you know me. I can't hide anything from you. There's a liberty about that. Christ sees your ugliness, he sees the mess of your sin, and he, I'm talking about ugliness in your heart. Um, <laughs> he, sees, he sees that, and he moves towards you. Why are you trying to hide from him? Christ moves towards us in our mess. You don't have to be hiding anymore. Creating a mask from God or from others. By the way, this is just painful. If you think hypocrisy is about doing this for the approval of others... Let us all agree now that living for the approval of other people is a painful way of life that does not satisfy. Because the praise of man, praise of humanity, is fleeting. You get it one day, you kind of get a bit of a high, oh, they thought I was great, or oh, that was wonderful, and then, onto the, and then the next day, where's the praise? And you're looking for it again, and again, and again. And you find yourself, if you find yourself living for the approval of other people, it will keep you up at night. As you start to think, well, what did that person think when I said that? And was that okay? And you start to kind of go over it in your head. And then you end up being controlled by the opinions of others. It kind of felt nice when someone praised you, but then you chase after it and you end up being, becoming a slave. To live for the approval of other people, whether it's about your religious acts or any other act, is just a waste of time. Please, I say it to myself and to you, stop, let's stop doing it. And also it doesn't help you. When you hide the reality of your sin... 
and the reality of the mess of your heart from others. It's a bit like a cancer patient who is feeling really um, uncomfortable about their symptoms, who never goes to the doctor, and things only get worse, not better. They feel embarrassed about their symptoms, and they say, well, I can't go to the doctor. I've got this thing. I've got this thing happening because they feel embarrassed. They don't want to admit to it, and, and, they, and they don't go to the doctor. This is a medical phenomenon, I believe. It's a bit like that. We're not helping ourselves. Actually, God wants to shine the light on the sin in our lives to reveal the mess to ourselves and to those around us, I believe, actually as a, as a kind of remedial, as a helping act. Maybe some of you don't come up for prayer ministry because you don't want other people to see you coming up. You think, I'd rather not let anybody see that I need prayer. I think that's not helping you. Failing to reveal the reality of your spiritual condition to others gives others no opportunity to genuinely speak into your life. So to, to, in order to run against this danger, I think it means being a people of radical honesty. And you know what? That's exactly the natural thing if you believe the gospel. If you believe that Christ loves you, that Christ moves towards you in your sin, that he <laughs> died for your sins, so they've already been dealt with on the cross, that is the wonderful place to start from saying, well, I can reveal everything to my brothers and sisters. Because actually I'm not justified by those um, successes and I'm not ruined by my failures. So I can reveal the reality of my life to others. There's a wonderful liberation or what we might call gospel security that because I believe that about what Christ has achieved on the cross for me, I can be honest about the mess in my life for others. This means deep, confessional, honest relationships with one another. They are absolutely essential to your spiritual flourishing. Do you have someone in your life who you are radically honest about the things that you're going through and the challenges that you're going through? I am particularly speaking to the men. I know that so many of us struggle with genuinely, honestly sharing what is going on with our lives with others. And that is, that is actually really unhelpful for your spiritual life. You really need a context where you can be honest. Even the, the pain of confession is good for you because in that moment you're reminded of the kind of awfulness of what you've done and actually that their repentance is required. And at the same time, that person can then speak the grace of God to you. You need a context of honest, radical confession. So do you see the foolishness of curating this spiritual image? It's an offense to the living God and it's foolish. So pull up the roots of your hypocrisy. We need to realize the deep roots of hypocrisy. It's not just a superficial behavior. It comes from the deep desires of our hearts. In order to avoid this temptation, we need to deal with the roots. Hypocrisy is a little bit like uh, Japanese knotweed. If you've heard of that, it's a plant that gets in the foundations of buildings and ruins homes and can have a really hor horrendous effect on the value of people's houses But when they find that they've got it. And, and what's really interesting about Japanese knotweed is if you destroy the, the plant on the surface, if you burn it, that makes, that's not enough. If you really want get, need to get rid of Japanese knotweed, you need to get in and destroy every root in the garden, otherwise it's going to come back. If you're going to deal with hypocrisy in your life, this temptation to want to present an image to others, you need to deal with the roots. You need to uproot the fear of man in your life. You need to say, I will stop listening to those voices of the opinions of others. How do we do that? Well, I actually think part of it is just choosing to, to choose to say no 
Just as you train yourself to say no to temptation, as you say, I know where that leads, I know the feeling of guilt or the pain and the cause I'm going to cause to others as I go down that pathway, so I'm going to, I'm going to not do that. There's a, something similar going on as you choose to ignore the opinions of others. As you say, no, actually, I, I, you recognize it in yourself. As you, in that moment, you think, oh, I'm actually just doing this. I'm, I'm staying late at this party because I'm a bit worried about what people think of me. I really should go home and get a good night's sleep. But I'll, I'll just say, okay, no, stop. I see what's going on here. I see what is driving me. I'm being driven by the opinions of other people. At that point, I have to say, what is the right thing under God rather than man? It's a, it's a commitment to live for the audience of one. A commitment to say, that voice, the, vo- the voice of the living God, who is both powerfully challenging and incredibly gracious, that voice is a far better voice to live under and submit to than the voices of the people around me. There are people in your life who you know, they loom large. You think of them, their voice, you can hear it in your head sometimes, and you think, they are, I'm actually in a sense being controlled by their opinion. Now, we're not kind of just one of those people who say, ignore the haters and just do your own thing. No, we say we want to live under the living God, and that voice is so much better than the voices of the people around you. So make that choice. Replace their voices with God's voice. It's a much better voice to listen to. There perhaps also is a challenge here to uproot, I say this with hesitation, but uproot greed in your life. This is, of course, probably not um, connected in hypocrisy in our lives because we don't have the same kind of public donation opportunities that they do. We're unlikely to fall into this trap explicitly, but I think we know that greed and the love of money will be bubbling beneath the surface in many of us. And the problem is greed is difficult to identify because kind of no one, you don't really know that you're doing it. We live, we're, we live in an expensive city where there's always people who are richer than us. Our financial decisions are private, so very rarely do other people speak into our lives about our financial decision making. We live in a culture of essentially the normalization of, of, of certainly the love of money and the pursuit of wealth as the overarching goal of their lives. Uh, John Calvin, writing in the 1500s, writing 500 years ago, said, they sold their possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. 500 years ago, he wrote that. The, 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 the lust to purchase reigns supreme. I mean, that feels like 21st century London. I mean, only, only much more <laughs> since Geneva in the 1500s. So I think it's hard to spot. But you've got to see the danger. The danger. Can you see it here? The love of money has caused this deceitful act. This is why in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Saying, if you love money, like these guys, actually that will cause you to to do all sorts of evil. Maybe it will cause you to lie because you think, I want to get ahead in my job. Or maybe it will cause you to compromise your values because you're pursuing the wealth rather than integrity. Maybe it will cause envy and bitterness and it will corrupt your heart because you are really, you want the money that somebody else has. See the danger to your spiritual life, just of being over-focused on consumption and under-focused on pursuing the kingdom. The danger to your spiritual life of greed. So how do we deal with it? Well, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but actually, practicing generosity is the best way to deal with an idolatry of money in your heart. The best way to run against a, an idol of money is to be radically generous and to run against that and to say to your heart, actually, I can do that and I don't, and I don't suffer as a result. 
And actually, I believe some of us, you might even start to experience the joy of giving. As you start to find things that the Lord's placed on your heart, as you prayerfully consider, I've been given this financial kind of resources. How can I use this to bless the world? Because it's not mine anyway. The Lord has given it to me to be a steward. And so actually, there's something of a joy of giving can emerge as you start to radically pursue his purposes to find ways to bless the world and to be a a kind of channel of blessing with your finances. But also, perhaps, it's about just practicing thankfulness, just practicing contentment, of remembering that because the Lord is your provider, that you don't need to stop worrying about food and clothing, you need to stop worrying and focusing on that consumption ethic in your life, because your heavenly Father knows what you need, and instead seek first the kingdom. Practice contentment. But where does this all come to? We said we see the offense of hypocrisy. We can see the foolishness of hypocrisy. We can see we've got to pull up the roots. We've got to deal with the fear of man, the love of money in our hearts. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, the message from is cultivate a pure heart for the Lord. The antidote to this hypocrisy, what the Lord would want to build and create in us is a people who are pure-hearted. Christ says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we put off hypocrisy, the desire for the praise of man, and greed, we say, Lord, would you make in us a pure heart? Would you make me someone who desires you for you, who sees your love and your holiness and, is, and enjoys you, and is captivated by your goodness and your majesty, who says, I must worship Say, God, would you give me a genuine and heartfelt devotion to you? Elsewhere, Christ speaks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It starts with us going on our knees, saying, God, would you make us a people who actually genuinely hunger? Not because we care about what other people think, but because we want to be the holy and righteous people that Christ wants us to be. We hear the the vision that Christ has for us to be a holy church, and we say, God, I want that. Would you make me want that? I don't want that, but would you make me want that? Would you give me a gospel security, a knowledge of your love that allows me to be radically honest both with you and with others? So brothers and sisters, there's an invitation here to drop the pretense, to confess perhaps any dishonesty in your life, certainly to recognize our impure motives, to confess and repent of a veneer of spirituality, to come and receive the grace and mercy of Christ. Some of us, we need to just take a moment and say, is there a danger? I'm just, my whole Christianity is a pretense. Perhaps recognize that you've been lying to yourself and lying to the people around you. You don't see that devotion to Christ in your heart or in your life. Actually, this says it's not too late that you can turn to Christ and you can allow him to become genuinely your Lord and Savior. We all need to hear Christ's invitation to stop hiding to come out of the shadows, to stop wearing a mask to church, to be honest about the challenges in our lives, to be honest when we're sad, not to pretend anything, but ultimately to say, God wants a holy church and it starts with the heart. 